we kicked off a series last week, a new series. Got a lot of emails about it this week um, called Why Am I So Afraid? And, and we looked at the classic story in the Bible, so many of you know it, uh, about Jesus and his disciples getting in a boat and a giant storm rolls in. In fact, the scripture describes it as a seismos, almost like an earthquake type storm. Remember I told you Matthew only used that, ver that, that uh, term two other places. Uh, when the ground shook when Jesus died, when the, when the ground shook when Jesus was erected, and in this event. And the thought process here for, 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 from some theologians is that the description here is that what Jesus is trying to conquer is not just death. It, it, what Jesus is trying to conquer in all of us is fear. And if you remember, Jesus is asleep while this seismos is going on and, and the disciples wake him up and, and Jesus looks at them and he asks them this profound question. Why are you so afraid? Now, you got to put yourself in the story. You can imagine their answers. Last week, we looked at the storms in our own lives, and we talked about what the things that we fear. I mean, we fear everything. We, we fear bad guys with bombs, shootings in our cities, terrorism's coming to, terrorism coming to our towns. We fear, if you're like me, you fear, you fear finishing last. You fear failure. You feel go, fear going broke, being sued. We fear the mole on our back, the new kid on the block, the new boss in the corner office. To the list of human fears, there is no end, but there is one fear that is so foundational to all of our lives, it is so commonly shared throughout history by every single person who has ever drawn breath. Because some fear failure, but not all of us. Some of you will go out and do wild things with abandon and have no fear. Some fear heights. Um, Joan and I went to St. Paul's Cathedral when we were visiting London years ago, and if you really wanted to be brave, you could go all the way up to like the thing that kind of circles the top, and uh, I didn't even like climbing up the ladders to get up there, and so I got out there, and you go out this little door at the top of St. Paul's Cathedral, and I got out there, and I had one of those seismos moments, and I'm going, you have got to be kidding me, um, and there were unpastoral words going through my heart, and... <laughs> I remember I just put, I literally, this is exactly what I did. I went, leaned back, and I put my arms on the thing. And uh, there's a giant crowd, so you can't turn around. And Joan is standing next to me, and Joan's like, look at the view. Isn't this incredible? And I said, oh, we got to go back in. And she goes, ah, you know, we waited all the time, so we got to go back in. And so she, she goes, well, do you mind if I say it? I said, yeah, you need to come with me. Um, I was scared to death. I was holding on. I had a seismos moment. I needed my wife to take me back down. So we fear heights, but not all of us. Some of you guys are like jumping out of planes and jumping off bridges. All of us fear one thing more than anything else, one single thing. And it was again shown to me so dramatically last Sunday. We, we had a lunch with the pastor last Sunday, and it was a great room packed full of new folks to mend them, and it was just exciting to be with them. And my phone rang. Uh, my phone rings a lot, as you would imagine, and uh, I saw there was a message there from my friend. He's a, he's a very old friend, a 25-year 25 25-year friend. He doesn't go to Menham Hills. He doesn't even live around here. None of you know him. Um, and so I saw it pop up during lunch with the pastor. He doesn't know I'm having lunch with the pastor. And so uh, when I got home Sunday night, I, I said, uh, hey, let me listen to that message. Here's what it was. Hey, John, I want to talk to you about my father. Uh, he's getting worse, and... Um gave him the book you, you gave me, and uh, he's, he's really worried about what happens when he dies, so he's reading the book, but I want to set something up when he's done with it, 
appreciate his his fears. Um, so I don't know when this would be exactly, but uh, just want to give you a heads up. So we'll talk soon. Thanks. Bye. There's something really haunting in that, isn't there? heard that and I'm sitting here preaching a sermon on fears and I couldn't help but think about my friend and his love for his dad and their shared fear of his fate. It's common. We all share it. Aristotle called death the thing to be feared most because, quote, it appears to be the end of everything. Jean-Paul Sartre asserted that death removes all meaning from life, Robert Greene Ingersoll. He was one of America's most outspoken agnostics. At his brother's funeral, this is what he said. He said, quote, life is a narrow veil between the cold and barren peaks of two eternities. We strive in vain to look beyond the heights. French philosopher, we have this, we can put it up. Francois Rabelais made this sentence about, this was his final sentence in life. I'm going to the great perhaps. And finally, maybe it was best captured uh, by Shakespeare's Hamlet. The dread of something after death, the undiscovered country from whose born no traveler returns. And while we've certainly become a people quite proficient in whistling past the graveyard, I drive by several on my way to work every day without giving a thought to it. It's not because we're people that are unafraid to die. When somebody tells you they're not afraid to die, um, in, in general, especially if they're people that have no interest in God, I, I, think that they're, they're, I think that what they're really communicating to you is that they're not thinking about dying. They're choosing not to face the fear of death, but to simply put it out of their minds until the day comes. But like it has for my friend and his dad, the day comes, and you have to deal with it. In our story from last week, when Jesus gets into the boat with his disciples and the seismos kicks up, the boat, it begins to toss and turn, and it begins to take on water. And for them in that moment, guess what time it was? It was time to deal with it. From Matthew chapter 8, verse 23, Scripture says, as Matthew tells the story, he says, then he, Jesus, got into the boat and his disciples followed him. Notice, Jesus gets in the boat, and the disciples see him in the boat, and they follow. That's how the scene played out. I want you to remember that, because in a little bit, you're going to see what fear does to us. So the scripture continues. Suddenly, a furious storm came up on the lake, so that the waves swept over the boat. Now, have you ever been in a, a moment like that, where the storm comes suddenly? Uh, Caleb and I were flying home from somewhere last year. And uh, all, you know, normal flight, everything's going fine. And suddenly the captain comes on the radio and he goes, oh, good, evening, good afternoon, and ladies and gentlemen. I uh, don't want anybody to be of fear. However, we're going to have to depart from where we were going to land. And we're going to have to go over to, I think, JFK. We were supposed to land in Newark. Because we can't get the landing gear down and they have much longer runways at JFK. Everything should be fine. Right, Kay? And Kay will tell you afterwards, the, the one feeling that was shared by everyone was utter silence. <laughs> Nobody said a word for like, you could just hear everybody just start to kind of pray. A sudden storm. 
rolled into the plain. A sudden storm came up on the lake, but Jesus was sleeping. And so the disciples, they go and they wake him up and they say, Lord, save us, we're going to drown. I was on a plane hit by lightning once. You ever been on a plane hit by lightning? You should not go on planes with me is likely the, the story here. But <laughs> On a plane hit by lightning once, right? Same thing. Bang! Plane shutters. The lights all go out for a second. Then they come back on. Dead silence. Then all of a sudden you just hear people pushing the stewardess thing. Boom, 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 boom. Lord, save us. I remember sitting on the plane home. Dear God, I don't want to die in this plane. They said, Lord, dear God, we don't want to die in the boat. We're going to drown. And Jesus replies, you have little faith. Why are you so afraid? Now, here's what's interesting. Mark tells this story, too. And, and, and as I showed you last week, when Mark tells the story, he, he gives a detail of what they, they expressed to Jesus. They said, do you even care that we're going to drown? It's fascinating. Jesus is asleep. Nobody runs and grabs on. Nobody goes, you know, if he's sleeping and, and, and he's all right, if I would just kind of snuggle up next to him and hold on to him really tight, I'll probably be all right. But fear never drives us towards Jesus, at least in our broken nature, at least as we exist as kind of normal human beings. When we get scared, we don't run towards him. We begin to question him, even down to his character. Do you even care about us? And it's this propensity to do this and what fear does to us that makes Jesus say more than any other command, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid because I know what it's going to do to you. And so Matthew continues. He says, then he, Jesus, got up and he rebuked the winds and the waves and it was completely calm. The men were amazed and asked, what kind of man is this? But even the wind and the waves obey him. That is a profound question. But I'm not sure, again, that the translation gives a, a clear picture of what was going on. Again, if you go back to Mark, Mark's re recollection of the story, actually probably got it from Peter. Mark, he wasn't on the boat, but when he recounts the story, he says that this is what happened. He takes the noun form, the verb form of the Greek word fear, and he says, after Jesus calmed the storms, that the disciples feared a great fear. He says that while the storm was going on, the disciples were scared to death of dying, of drowning. And something happened, and when they realized they weren't going to drown any longer, then they were more afraid than before. They were afraid of the storm, but now that Jesus has calmed the waves and the storm, the wind and the waves obey his words, now they're more afraid of who they're in the boat with than what's going on outside the boat. You get that? Suddenly they realize, suddenly for a moment in time, their eyes are open and they see things right. They see who they are and who he is and that perhaps we're afraid, maybe they've been afraid of all of the wrong things. Perhaps you and I have been afraid all of our lives of all of the wrong things all along. We fear storms and we fear men and we fear bombs and empires and armies. We fear disease and accident and loss. But there's this scriptural moment of clarity 
We're right in the middle of the seismos. Their fears pause. And their fear of everything outside of the boat suddenly pales in comparison to their fear, their reverence of the one inside the boat. Interesting. Because two chapters later, that was in, in Matthew chapter 8, two chapters later, Matthew recounts how these same disciples are being sent out by, by Jesus in his name to tell people about who he is, to heal them. And he says, Jesus, as he's sending them out, says, guys, I have to be honest with you. I'm sending you out, but you need to know I'm sending you out like sheep among wolves. I'm sending you into a storm. It's not going to go the way you think. Jesus tells them, while you're out there in this fallen world, you're going to have some trouble. And then he even gets specific with them. He, he says, while you're out there, um, some of you are going to be hated. Some of you are going to be handed over to, to counselors and rulers and, and flogged. And then he goes on to say, and some of you are going to die. But Jesus, and maybe, maybe, maybe because they remember the boat experience, and Jesus knows he taught them this in the boat, maybe that's why Jesus says to this, and they understand it, Matthew 10, 28. Jesus says, I'm telling you all this, but don't be afraid of those who will kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who could destroy both soul and body in hell. Can you see how maybe after the boat experience they might get that like they never did before? It's not what they can do to me that should be my biggest issue. It's not the storm that's the problem. There's something much bigger going on in this world than the storm. Most of the time we can pretend uh, that it's not there, the storm. Most of the time, even when it comes down to death, we can just whistle right past it. But for these disciples, their eyes have been opened to the greatness and the weightiness and the holiness of Jesus and who he is and how powerful he is and, and what he can do. And now they understand what they really should be fearing and what they shouldn't. And so which is it? Elders and I gathered yesterday morning. We were sharing our favorite psalms. Sounds very holy. Um, we were sitting around the table and we were sharing our favorite psalms. And uh, I, as we read, I would say, there's seven of us there, seven or eight of us. Every, uh, I'd say six of the eight psalms we shared all had to do with fearing the Lord. Fearing the Lord. And so which is it? Should we be afraid or not? Because Jesus says over and over, don't be afraid. But then he says, well, you should be afraid. Just make sure you're afraid of the right thing. Most of the time, in fact, all of the time, for most of us, our fears are misplaced. We fear storms, but we have so little reverence for the one who's in the boat with us. My dad was a big guy, still is a big guy. My dad is going to be 75 this year. He, he's so riddled with arthritis, he can barely stand. Um, and yet I'm fairly certain he still thinks he can beat me up. Um, and I would tell you myself, I think it's probably 50-50. Um, <laughs> He was, he was a big guy from growing up. He was 6'5", about 220 pounds. And uh, my dad had a chip on his shoulder. And, um, you know, he's the kind of guy, like, you know, he, he, he would get frustrated with people quick. Not, not a jerk, but he was a protective guy. And I remember one time we were outside, and there was a, a kid, kind of a neighborhood hoodlum. I grew up on the mean streets of Hackettstown. Um, <laughs> And it was kind of this neighborhood hoodlum kid kind of walking through, hair down his back and all the rest. And we had this little black dog. And as, as uh, the, the dog ran up to him as he cut through our yard, he kicked the dog. 
And my dad was there and I said, oh no, um, this isn't going to end well. Um, and I was thinking for my dad it wasn't going to end well because this guy looked tough. Uh, and my dad just kind of looks at him and goes, what are you doing? You know, and walks up to him and goes, why, why do you think you can kick my dog? Don't, don't kick the dog again. And the guy just kind of walked away. And it was like as a little boy, it was like, whoa, who is this man that can handle the burnouts around town? <laughs> it just provided me this great comfort. It, it, it was that I knew, I knew he was there. And so because he was in the house with me, I wasn't as, as afraid anymore of what was outside of the house. I, I, was more in, I, was more, I more revered who was the one in the house with me. Now, if that's true, and we all think this way about God, or at least many of us, that he is big and strong and powerful, why is it then that the one who's in the boat with us, the one who has the power to calm the storm, why do we find it so hard to find comfort in God? Why is it common for all of creation, my friend and his dad, to know that they understand that there is a God and he's powerful, so very powerful, but why doesn't this provide for them any, any real comfort? Why is there so much fear? There's this primal fear of meeting him. It, it wasn't always that way. You see, it was never actually meant to be that way. Because there was a time that the thought of a face-to-face -face with God was not terrifying, but it was edifying. It was a time that having a big God was comforting and not worrisome, but something happened that changed all of it. Many of you know in the creation stories, it's told in the first book of the Bible, it's a book called Genesis, there was a time when man dwelt with God in community and man did not shrink back in fear. Sure, there was reverence. Of course, there was reverence for who God is, but man was not afraid. The Bible teaches that in the beginning of our story, we walked with God throughout the garden on this earth in the cool of the day. But as many of you know, if you know the story, temptation enters into the story. It, it enters into our stories. And our desire, our continual desire to no longer subject ourselves to God, but to be for ourselves our own God, to, to lose reverence for God and to begin to revere ourselves, this changed something. The Bible refers to that, uh, what happens to us, uh, this, this breaking in our heart and the outworkings of it in our lives as sin where you and I choose to elevate ourselves above God and to begin to decide for ourselves what is right and what is wrong. That's the temptation. Many of us think that it was the fruit. The fruit is symbolic of what the temptation was. The temptation was that you can decide for yourself what's right and what's wrong. You can be like God. And so what happened in quite literal ways is that we removed gods from our boats, believing we had the power to captain it into the storms ourselves. And so when sin entered into our equation, into our world, we found a new primal fear. You know, in the original creation story, there was no fear. In the original creation story, Adam lives without fear. Adam feels as protected that day in the Garden of Eden as I did in the driveway from the burnout. No fear. But watch what happens. Genesis records it right after the fall of man, right after sin enters into our world and into us. In Genesis chapter 3, verse 8, 
It says, right after that, the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God who used to comfort them as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to them, where are you? And he answered, I heard you in the garden, and I was, church, afraid. First time fear's ever mentioned. First time fear's ever felt. Could you imagine the heart of God at that moment with your precious son, all, all of your creation? You're afraid of me? Sin entered in and fear followed. Fear follows sin. Max Lucado puts it this way. He says, fear entered in the back seat of sin's convertible. Think about Adam. He lived with the lions and elephants. He wasn't nervous. He named the sharks and the bears. He wasn't afraid. He asked out the first perfect woman without even a hint of a reservation. But when he sinned, he couldn't get into the bushes quick enough. He hid from God, scared out of his wits, and here's the truth. Ever since that day, we've been hiding from God. And it results in phone calls like the one you heard. Because we're scared to death. This is, in the way we are created, in the way we are to function, at our very cores, there is something in us that tells us that God must not be happy. We get it. Most of us are familiar with our own sin. I am, our own brokenness. We understand, I understand how messed up I am, how my thoughts are not right, they're impure, my motives aren't really always for others, they're oftentimes for myself. I know how short-tempered I am, how self-centered I am. I know how I've treated my wife and my kids, that it hasn't always exactly measured up to the standard that God would have, let alone how I've treated my enemies. We remember what we said and what we did. We remember that one bad night in college, that one poor choice on the business trip. We remember the promise that this is going to be the last time, God, that, that is so often never kept. And we begin to think, if we're disappointed, if we get it that we don't even measure up to the kind of person we want to be, then how in the world could I measure up to the kind of person that God wanted me to be? And when that happens, when we have an understanding of our sin and our brokenness, and we all do, the scripture indicates that we all do, in comes fear, and we run to the bushes. I gotta hide. And see, the problem with death is it's the great unveiler of those of us hiding in the bush. And so we try to fix it. I mean, humanity's been trying to fix it forever. Uh, we try to be good, but we wonder. I can't tell you how many dying people I've met with where they go, I'm not sure, I've been, I mean, have I been good enough? And we try to give more, but when I meet with them, they say, I mean, you know, maybe I should have, what if I had given more money? We, we try to pray, I, I, but I wonder, have I prayed enough? The marriage of sin and fear, it's quite a, a frightful coupling. In my mind, I can't help but go back and think about the heart of God when he hears his son. Imagine your son, your boy saying, you're afraid of me now? And, and so here's this God who knows us and knows what we're experiencing. He knows our primary problem. He understands that the primary driver of fear is sin. It's fueled by it, especially the, the fear of death, fueled by sin. Now, if chronology means anything in the ministry of Jesus, 
His primary command of the 21 commands that he, he issues, the, the, the great majority of them relative to any other was not to fear. Okay, so if that's important to you, maybe the chronology of when he uses that command matters. I want to share with you the first time he references fear because I think it can show us something about Jesus' priorities about fear. Mark tells the story. He begins, he says, a few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. And so they gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. The place was sold out. You couldn't get in. Mark says he preached the word to them. And some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Thought process being, this guy, we've heard about why, what he can do and how he can heal. We're going to bring our friend to him for healing. But since they couldn't get to Jesus because of the crowd, they can't even get in the room. This is a crazy story, okay? It's a true story. This is not a parable. This is a true story. They made an opening in the roof above Jesus. They take the paralytic up on the roof. They dig through the roof, and they lower the mat the man was lying on. Now, this is a bit risky. Most homeowners don't like having their roof cut open. Most paralytics aren't going to love the idea of being lowered down through, through this roof. And you would think, Jesus has got a full room. He's commanding the room. He's got a lot of people there. I'm sure what he was saying was pretty important. This did not, see, we read this story and we think it's like a two-second story. You've got to picture this. It doesn't take two seconds to cut through the roof. There's some amount of time where everybody's sitting around going, what are these idiots doing? And you might wonder if Jesus is sitting around going, I got something going on here that's important, and now we're going to have to wait for you to cut through this roof. What would his reaction be to this? Matthew continues, he says that they brought him to a paralytic lying on a bed, and seeing their faith, Jesus said to the paralytic, take courage, here we go, take courage, don't be afraid, take courage, son, your sins are forgiven. So Matthew shows their faith seems to please them. Their bold belief thrilled Jesus. He wasn't offended by their timing. He was excited about it. Here's the interesting part. He was so excited by their faith that he issued a blessing before the blessing was requested. And he issued a blessing that was definitely not what was expected. He says, take courage, son. Don't be afraid. Your sins are forgiven. He didn't come to get his sins forgiven. He came to walk. Take courage, son. You would think, you would think if you're reading the story and you weren't so familiar with it, you would think that it would say, Jesus would say, take courage, son. Your legs are healed. Don't be afraid, son. I'm going to heal your spine. Take courage, son. Get up and run. We would expect Jesus to say something like that. So how do we explain this? The storm of this man's paralysis is why he's there, but Jesus does not deal with his storm. Jesus deals with something else. He doesn't deal with what was going on outside of the boat. He deals with something that's going on inside of the boat. What was he thinking? Well, back in the garden, he was thinking about our deepest problem, sin. And he was addressing our deepest fear, uncertainty about eternity. And so, so before he heals the body, and he, he would heal the body, before he calmed this man's storm, he healed his soul. And he said, take courage, son. Don't be afraid anymore. Your sins are forgiven. In the gospel, Jesus issues nearly two dozen calls to courage. This is the first one. 
the initial declaration to awaken every day with courage in our hearts. This is the first one. Here's why. Huge discovery. Courage begins with an understanding of grace. It begins with a grasp of who God is and his desire for forgiveness and restoration of relationship with you. If you are longing for fearless days, this is where we start. We start where Jesus started because the biggest issue for all of us is sin. Courage begins, we can overcome our primary fear, the one my friend's dad is wrestling with, the one Aristotle wrote of. Courage begins when we grasp and cling to the offer that Jesus has for us and we believe it. The big announcement of the Bible is this, you no longer have to be afraid of anything. But most importantly, you no longer need to let the fear of death be your primary driving fear. I've come for you. The fear that you feel over your sins, over missing the mark, over dropping the ball, you're right. Your sins are costly. They separate you from God, but I've come to pay the price for your sins. My my father-in-law, as many of you know, is dying. Kids went up to see him this weekend. He's very weak. He's in bed. And so my brother-in-law came up with the idea that we would, uh, we would have a phone call with him two times a week. And uh, it's me and my father-in-law and my brother-in-law. And so each of us take a turn doing one thing. One of us tells a, talks about an attribute of the kingdom. One of us, uh, you know, peace, love. Uh, another one of us tells a story and another does a family update. And, and we go around and we talk about these things. And, and so I've been talking to my father-in-law two times a week about the kingdom. And uh, this week when we talked about it, he, he said, he goes, you know, I, I'm not afraid. My father-in-law has been following Christ for decades. He said, he said I've got to tell you, I'm not afraid to die. He said, I don't want to leave, I don't want to leave mom. I don't want to leave you guys, but I'm not afraid to die. See, the story asks the question, if you were able to choose a body in perfect health all your life but no guarantee of heaven, or the guarantee of heaven, but knowing that in life and maybe in your body there would be storms, what would you choose? See, my father-in-law has come to believe and trust wholly that his sins are forgiven. If you lowered him down through the roof of the house... And Jesus said, hey, Carl, would you rather be cured of the cancer or have your sins forgiven? My father-in-law would say, there's not even a question. I will wrap my arms around the grace of God. This is how the big fear is conquered. Through an all-out understanding and a full grasp of the grace of God and what he has done for you in Jesus. A full-out belief that leads to repentance and a turning away from our sin and a following of Jesus. This is our faith. Jesus sees this young boy with all of his paralysis and all his troubles, but he gives him a more important gift first. There's another story of Jesus sending out the disciples, again, as sheep amongst wolves, and they come back and they're so excited about all of the things and the healings and the miracles they had seen, and Jesus says, that's all great. He says, but don't rejoice over that. Rather rejoice because your names are written in heaven. Jesus laces this teaching about how we can have confidence because he understands that death is our primary fear. Jesus says over and over, he says, to all who believe, there is no condemnation. Jesus says to everybody who looks to the Son and believes in him, they shall have everlasting life. And he says, I will come back. He doesn't say, I might come back for you. I'm hoping to come back for you. He says, I will raise him up on the last day. 
John said, these things I have written to you that those of you who believe may know that you have eternal life. Jesus did not come, go through all that he went through. He was not beaten, bruised, crucified, murdered, killed, died. He did not go through all that so you and I would walk around scared of death. He did it so you would be set free from the ultimate fear in life. Here, listen, listen to what Paul wrote to Titus. This is so good. Paul, Paul wrote to Titus. He said, God's readiness to give and forgive because of what Jesus has done is now public. Salvation is available for everyone. We're being shown how to turn our backs on a godless, indulgent life. This is repenting, right? A turning away from our sins. And how to take on a God-filled, God-honoring life. This new life, church, it doesn't start when we go to heaven. This new life is starting right now. And it's just whetting our appetites for the glorious day when our great God and Savior Jesus Christ appears. He offered himself as a sacrifice to free us from a dark, rebellious life into this good, pure life. Making us the people he can be proud of. Energetic in goodness. And here, listen to what Paul tells Titus. Go and tell them all this. Make sure they understand. Build up their courage because they're afraid of dying. And it's ruining their lives. Nothing fosters courage like a full understanding of grace and nothing fosters fear like an ignorance of it. Lucado, when he talks about this, he says, if I can speak candidly, he says, if you don't accept God's forgiveness, you are doomed to fear and no one can help you. You are going to be haunted by the grave. Sin will keep you up at night. It will whisper in your ear. It will scare you to death. And if you have chosen, church, if you have chosen to follow this Jesus, if you have, if you have said, I, I no longer want to be the God of my own life, I am putting you back in your place. I am turning away from all of my sin. I am going to now follow you. If you've done that, church, you have no reason to fear. Boat story number two. Jesus is always getting these guys in the boat. It's a, it's a good learning ground for them. Check this out. Many of you know the story. Jesus, he feeds the 5,000. The boat stories always happen right after Jesus does miracles. It's like he's trying to show them you should trust me, but they don't. Matthew tells another boat story, and, and here's how he starts. In Matthew chapter 14, uh, starting in verse 22, the scriptures say immediately after feeding the, the, the thousands, Jesus, quote, made the disciples get into the boat. Does anybody know why Jesus made the disciples get into the boat? Because they remember what happens the last time they followed Jesus into the boat. We're not getting in the boat. And Jesus says, get in the boat. And then he pushes them out. And could you see them going, wait, aren't you getting in the boat? No, no, no. Jesus says, get in the boat and go on ahead of me to the other side. And so they get in and they start rowing. And in just, I just love this. It's just so funny. It, you can almost see Jesus smiling at this, right? After he dismissed them, he goes up on a mountainside by himself to pray. You almost wonder if he's watching them. And later that night, he's there alone in the boat, was already a considerable distance from the land, buffeted by waves because the wind was against it. I just, I, lo it, it, I love it because it should be familiar to them. Wait a minute. This is a familiar scene. It should jog a memory. Remember back on the lake? Remember when, we, remember when he was here with us? What he told us? And so Matthew goes on. It says, uh, he says, shortly before dawn, they're out there all night. All night. 
Shortly before dawn, Jesus goes out to them walking on the lake. When the disciples saw him walking on the lake, they were terrified. It's a ghost, they said, and they cried out in fear. Can you imagine Jesus' reaction to this? What have I been telling you? How many times am I going to have to explain this to you? Don't you remember the deal? Stop being so afraid. Don't you get it? You don't need to be afraid of what's going on outside of your boat. Scripture says, Jesus immediately says to them, take courage. It's me. Don't be afraid. And there's, there's this element of dawning, you would imagine, in their minds where they're like, well, what? You weren't with us, but apparently you were watching us. And you can see Jesus kind of saying, yeah, because the day is coming where I won't be with you, but I'll be watching you. And just as you didn't need to be afraid when I was asleep in the bow and, and the storm was raising, just like you didn't need to be afraid when you were out here and the waves were coming up, you're not going to be, need to be afraid when the storms come because I've got you. Fear not. Now, if you know the story of the Bible, do they get this? They don't get it. If you know the story of the Bible, they run, they flee, they hide. Jesus gets arrested, they scatter. Jesus gets crucified, they're on the run. Jesus gets buried, it's the women. It's always the brave women who go to attend to him. Peter, you know the story, is denying him over and over and over again. What happened to fear not? Right in the can, it was just the teaching. Didn't do anything for their hearts. And they go right back to fear the storm, fear what can, I'm going to fear what ha can happen to the body, I'm going I'm to fear what, what, what can happen from men. But something strange happens, if you know the, if you know the end of the story, at the end of the Gospels, they, they emerge totally, somehow, all of a sudden, they're fearless. Like they got it. What happened? Because there wasn't another boat, boat ride or another lesson. Here's what happened. They saw a resurrected Savior. And once Jesus rose from the dead and they became fearless. Why? Because the ultimate enemy, the enemy of death, had been defeated. And when they lost their fear of death, they feared not. When they lost their fear of death, they feared not. They understood there is nothing more to be afraid of ever again. Teaching didn't do it. Miracles didn't do it. Campfires didn't do it. Resurrection changed everything. Now, the early followers of Jesus got this. They actually, so much more than we who are kind of like, you know, 21st century followers, they actually believed this. We often, we often are like the disciples in the boat. We get the lesson, but, but we can still flee. When you finally stake your eternity, that Jesus really did die for your sins on the cross, that it's not just a story, that he really did reconcile you to God to forgive you and to restore a relationship back to what it was supposed to be so you do not have to be afraid of your father any longer. When you believe he really rose from the dead and that he was seen by hundreds of people, including Paul, who was a persecutor of the church, when you believe that he is resurrection life and that he offers it to you, your fear of death begins to evaporate. And once you, you learn not to fear, once you learn not to fear death, you no longer fear those that can harm the body. You begin to reverence the one who controls your soul. 
Fear not becomes a way of life, and there is no longer a fear of death. Band, you guys can come up. In, in the second century, there was, there was an emperor named Marcus Aurelius. He was a real-life historical figure. Uh, he oversaw the persecution, what's known historically as the first, fourth major persecution of Christians around 175 A.D., it was a famous Roman doctor at that time. His name was Claudius Galenus. And he wrote a lot of things about, what, that, about me- medical stuff in, in the early, early days. And they, they've been preserved. And, and he talks about, the, he writes about these times and, and these persecuted Christians. See, in, in, in those days, in that first century, you weren't allowed to touch dying bodies. So if you were a doctor and you actually wanted to go and see and learn about death, you weren't allowed to touch a dying body. But what they would do is they would, they would, per, they would they'd slaughter the Christians. They'd send them into lion's ends. They'd put them in the arenas. And as they were dying, then the doctors would come out and look at them. That's how they would study death. And here, here's what... Uh, Here's what this famous doctor wrote after seeing all of these Christians tortured to death, all of these Christians in their big storms. In his writing, this famous doctor wrote this about the early Christians, quote, for fearlessness of death and the hereafter is something we witness in them every day. There's something about those people. There's something about them. They're fearless. They're not afraid at all. There's something about them. They're like no other people. In fact, it's kind of attractive. They walk around without any fear at all. Churches, we conclude, if you have not come to a place of saving, saving grace, of understanding what Jesus is offering you, if you, are, if you have not yet been willing to step down off the throne of your own life and embrace Christ, allow God to, to, to attain again the position he should have in your life, you should. Because I can't offer you anything else to stop your fears. I could give you programs and practices, but they'll never, they'll never be what you really need. And for those of you here at Menham Hills that would say, I've done that, I want you to understand, please understand at the deepest possible levels, you have nothing to fear. Let's stand and sing together.